0: He is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Mm, Amen. Take him as his every word. I pray that that's your heartbeat. That's certainly what we intend the heartbeat of Temple Hills Baptist Church to be, that we don't trust our own words. We don't trust our own thoughts. We want to test our thoughts, test our words against God's word. And that way, every Sunday, what we're trying to do is a kind of fact check. Have you noticed that kind of language come up often, especially in political seasons? where candidates are saying all kinds of words, and then the next day you've got political pundits and newspapers having to go back and analyze all the words that were said and to do a kind of fact check. was What was said actually true? Well, it's not just kind of something that politicians are prone to do. We're often, week after week, prone to use words and have ideas and thoughts circling around in our heads and experiences in our lives that require us to go back to the Bible as a kind of authoritative fact check because we often have so many ill-suited, ill-fitted ideas about everything in life, from how we feel to how we live to what we think, that need to have an authoritative yes or no. And so here at Temple Hills Baptist Church, every Sunday, there's some person behind this pulpit, some man bringing God's word, not simply because there's nothing else for us to do, but because the most important thing for us to do is to hear from God. Uh, the man serving as a mouthpiece simply for God to speak, for our thoughts to be examined by his word, so that all our creeds, all our conduct will be tried by him. So if you have your Bibles, that's what we're going to continue to do today. We've been working our way through Genesis chapter two and really the whole book of Genesis overall over the last few weeks. It'll probably take us years to finish the whole book. We won't go straight through it, Uh, but kind of section by section, thinking through what God has to say for us from the very beginning of the world and the very beginning of his word. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. If you need a Bible of your own, uh, you can use the Bible under the chairs or on the pews upstairs, and you can find it on page 2 of Genesis 2. If you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, please take that one home uh, with you. we love for you to have your own copy of God's Word. Genesis chapter 2. And this morning we're going to look at verses 18 through 25 together. I would love for you to keep your eyes on the text. Just keep your Bible open in your lap or your phone open uh, in your hand so that you can test whether what I'm saying is what the Bible is actually saying. So that you can do a kind of constant fact-checking even as I'm preaching. Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 through 25. We read, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now, just by way of reminder, we need to reflect on what we have here in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is an expansion of Genesis chapter 1. It's not a a, a totally different story written by a totally different author, as some modern critics would say. Genesis chapter 2 is rather a kind of double click on Genesis chapter 1. If you had Genesis chapter 1 as a whole open on your computer, you might right click open. Or you might hyperlink, and what you'd get is Genesis chapter 2. It's expanding upon the details of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and into the first couple of verses in Genesis chapter 2 describe God creating the world in six days and then resting on the seventh day. Well, then for the majority of Genesis chapter 2, stretching from verses 4 through the end of the book, it focuses down on one particular day. On the sixth day that Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 31 talked about, where God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Genesis 2 drills down to give us details on how that happened. And so last week, we looked at verses 4 through 17, where God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed his breath into his nostrils, and the man became a living soul. Well, here in our passage this morning, Moses, the author of Genesis, gives us details into the other half of humanity, the woman, the female, and he expands to share about her unique creation and the relation between the man and the woman in God's good original design and what their purpose together are to be. So here's what I think is the main idea of this passage, the main idea of the sermon, Gender and marriage are good gifts God gives to accomplish his purposes and for us to enjoy. Gender and marriage are good gifts that God gives to accomplish his purposes and for us to enjoy. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll hang our thoughts on on three scenes we see in the text. So three points to the passage. Number one, we see a problem. A problem. We see that in verse 18. Number two, we see a preliminary proposal. We see that in verses 19 and 20. And number three, we see the perfect match. We see that in verses 21 through 25. Number one, a problem in verse 18. Number two, a preliminary proposal in verses 19 to 20. And third and lastly, the perfect match in verses 21 through 25. First, a problem. Look with me again at verse 18. We read, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. We see here once again, a reminder that the God of the Bible is living and active. He is no dead and mute idol. He speaks. Then the Lord God said, we read in the first few verses, is what Mark chapter one, God speaking over and over. We heard the refrain and God said and God said and God said, well, here again, God speaks. And what does God say? It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God's words here are meant to meet us like a freight train, are meant to slap us across the face like a splash of cold water. Because just as chapter 1 was littered with all these references of God speaking things into existence, it was also littered with words of God's delight at all the things that he brought into existence. Over and again in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 4, And in verse 10, and in verse 12, and in verse 18, and in verse 21, and in verse 25, we read that after God made something, that he looked back at the light, and God saw that it was good. In chapter 1, we're presented with a God who's maybe the only being who's ever existed for whom when you ask, how's everything going, he can legitimately say, all good. But then Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 comes along and pops us with the pronouncement from God himself that something for the first time in history is not good. What is not good? It is not good that the man should be alone. It wasn't that man was broken in any way or flawed in any way. He was perfect and yet he wasn't complete. God's crown creation wasn't finished, it still needed some jewels added to that thing. Something or rather someone was still missing. That raises some questions for us, doesn't it? If it's not good that man should be alone, then why did God make man to be alone? At least for a certain amount of time. Why not make a companion, a woman for him at the same time he made Adam from the same lump of dirt From which he made Adam. Well, that wasn't God's plan. It wasn't God's design. It was not God's plan to put together Adam like we put together a piece of furniture and realize after it's complete that we forgot to add something. No, God is not like us, He didn't forget to add something. No, there's reasons here that God does not make man and woman at the same time. Reasons that he makes man first, even with a relational gap, and then makes woman. It sets a pattern for ordered relationships between men and women in different spheres, most notably in marriage and in Christian fellowship. The Apostle Paul, many centuries after the book of Genesis was written, uh, writes about what's fitting and proper in churches. Why women are not to teach or have authority over men and why there's gender distinctive roles and conduct in churches. And he grounds it not in the fall, not as a result of sin, but he grounds it in creation, in Adam being formed first, then Eve. We might think there never had to be a problem if God just made Adam a companion from the start. But even in that, we're shown that we are not God. God had a plan. God had a purpose in everything that he means to unfold. And amazingly, he lets us in on the unfolding of that plan. I mean, mean, consider here that verse 18 isn't really needed in order to tell us about the creation of the woman. The passage could very well just start at verse 21 with God putting man to sleep, taking one of his ribs and making the woman. But that's not how God wants things revealed amazingly, God actually wants us to know his mind. He deliberates among himself in verse 18. He lets us in on his thoughts, just as he did in chapter 1, verse 26, when before he made man, he he let us in on a conversation among the divine counsel, uh, telling himself, let us make man in our image. Well, here he, he lets us in on his deliberation, on his thoughts, he says, it is not good that man should be alone. And he lets us know what he's going to do to fix the problem. I will make a helper fit for him. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 becomes something of a needed historical guide then for people to look back on throughout the ages and to test and correct our thoughts. Should man ever come to think That life in complete isolation is good. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 is corrective. Should man ever come to think of women as bad or as invaluable or as helpless? Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 is corrective. Should man come to think that he could do things on his own as a kind of lone ranger? Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 is corrective. It is God's perspective on the matter. God made man perfect. But even perfect man was not God. The first man, Adam, was not self-sufficient, was not self-reliant, was not self-functioning. How do we know? Because God said he needed a helper. A helper to do what? Well, not just to, to fill some empty hole in Adam's heart. Not just to provide the thrill of love and affection that Adam's heart was throbbing for. We need not psychologize this passage. Reading into it what the text doesn't actually say. That Adam felt lonely. That Adam was sullen and searching for something more. No, the problem here isn't described as being first felt by Adam, but first acknowledged by God. He made the man and he gave the man commands to follow, commands that he knew the man needed help to accomplish. Commands to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. Adam couldn't do that solo. He needed help. Commands to work and keep the garden, to serve and to guard it. And command to stay faithful to his God and faithful to his God's word to eat from all the trees except the one forbidden tree, the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam needed help for those things as well. And God knew it. And God determined to do something about it. Sometimes I find that incredibly comforting that God sees problems before we perceive them. And that God provides solutions for those problems before we even think of asking Him for solutions. I think of Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31, or verse 31. Jesus says, "Do not be anxious, saying, "What shall we eat?" or "What shall we drink?" or what shall we wear?" For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all." Earlier in that same passage, he he told them, do not be like the Gentiles who offer up empty, heap up empty phrases. And he tells them, for your father knows what you need even before you ask. God knows our needs and has already resolved to provide for them. How good of a God he is. Verse 18 shows us that man is made for community, for a relationship. And not only with God, but also with other creatures, other creatures who will be with him and who will help him. And who will fit that bill, right, for someone to help him? Well, it needs to be someone who will be for him. You see that the verse 18, you God says, I will make a helper fit for him. The word means a helper corresponding to the man. Not, not exactly like him, but complimentary to him, suitable for him. But what kind of helper could that possibly be? That leads into our second point, number two, a preliminary proposal. Point number two, a preliminary proposal. In verse 18, we're left with a problem that Adam is alone with, with God saying that's not good and vowing to make a suitable helper for him. And so we expect that verse 19 will provide that helper. I mean, we expect or rather demand that God will act immediately to meet our needs. But often God works in mysterious ways, sometimes delaying to even deepen our needs so that he might get all the more glory when he finally satisfies them. I think of Jesus in John chapter 11. When Mary and Martha come bring him news that his friend Lazarus is ill, that there was a need. And yet the text tells us that Jesus stayed two days longer. He delayed going to see him and to heal him so that Lazarus eventually dies. But it was so that Jesus would meet the need in a far better way than Mary or Martha or anyone else could have imagined raising Lazarus from the dead so that the son of God might be glorified through it. God sometimes delays providing immediate solutions to our problems, rather deepening them before meeting them for his glory and for our good. We see the same thing here. Here, God, in acknowledging that Adam needs a partner, parades a panoply of pets before him in a kind of preliminary proposal to solve this problem. We read in verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. What an amazing task given to this man, to Adam, as it relates to these animals. I mean, God makes all these animals and he rules over them. Their lives are ultimately dependent upon him. But God leaves to Adam the authority to name them. God's rule is extended through and mediated by Adam. You see, to name something is an act of authority. Note how God named the things he made in creation week of chapter one. God said, let there be lights. And God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness night. God said "Let the waters under the earth be gathered together and that the dry land appear. And God called the dry land earth and the waters gathered together. He called the seas. Later in the Genesis account, we see God taking the authoritative, authoritative measure to learn people's names and then to say, I'm going to change your name. No longer shall your name be Abram, but Abraham. I don't care what your mama called you. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. He says in Genesis chapter 35, verse 10. To name is to throw your weight around a little bit. It's an act of authority in the relationship. But to name all these animals also entails some intimacy and some enjoyment of all these creatures. Uh, the scene before Adam in verse 19, even if it's seemingly understated in this passage, is actually wonderful. I think we should be amazed by the creativity of God that's endowed by God and enjoyed by man here. I mean, just, just, just think of all the, the, the various shapes and sizes and colors and features of all these animals passing before Adam. Adam looks at them. He analyzes them, he, he plays around with them, and based on their features, based on their personalities, one species differing from another species. He then forms letters put together in words with phonetic sounds that become the names of all these different species. You a giraffe. <laughs> oh, you are elephant? You a dog. <laughs> That sort of thing is amazing. The animals we know by name, even if in different languages, were named. Not by God who made them, but by Adam who enjoyed them, who spent time with them and then named them. What a fun and freeing and even in some senses fulfilling exercise that must have been. There was much fellowship with all these animals But Adam still wasn't fully fulfilled. There was still a relational gap. There was still something missing. The end of verse 20 reminds us that even with all this parade of newly named animals lined up before him, the problem remained for for Adam. There was not found helper fit for him. Adam now begins to to become aware of and feel the need that God had already acknowledged. The need of a helper that corresponded that uniquely to him. All these animals had their own pairs. They were a male and female giraffe, a male and female monkey, a male and female elephant, but there was no counterpart for Adam. No one who corresponded uniquely to him because no animal can feel that need. I think this then subtly provides another bullet in the barrel to, to blow up the myth and falsehood of evolution, and namely as it relates to people, that, that people evolve from, from some kind of animal species, that people evolve, evolve from apes. For one, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 repeatedly and explicitly tell us that God made man in his own image. But even here in verses 19 through 20. In in Adam's response to this presentation of all the animals before him, we see a rebuttal, even if slightly, to the theory of human evolution. I mean, with none of all these animals, does Adam examine them and enjoy them and name them and come to the conclusion, this one really looks like me. This one really acts like me. This one is really fit to be my companion. No, with all these different animals that Adam spent intimate time with, intimate fellowship with, was able to see and enjoy them and name them. He understood that they're totally different from me. There was something totally distinct. Now, with all these wonderful creatures, Adam still finds them wanting, lacking, insufficient and unsuitable partners. Animals ain't designed for that purpose. We were made for more. We were made for someone made more like us. And praise God that God gives more. That brings us to our third and really the climax point of this passage. Number three, the perfect match. The perfect match. Having presented the problem. That it's not good for man, for Adam to be alone. And then having paraded all the animals before Adam to even deepen that problem. Adam feels that now to him or that he lacks a sufficient partner. God moves to finally and completely solve the problem. Look with me at verse 21. We read, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. A deep sleep is often divinely produced in the Bible and tied to divine work. In a few chapters, in Genesis chapter 15, we see that God puts Abraham in a deep sleep before he enters into a covenant with him before he passes by him and passes through him, comes into his presence by a smoking torch and flame through the cut pieces of the animal sacrifices. Here he puts Adam into a deep sleep before he again comes into the presence of man to produce a, a present, to produce a gift. Verse 21 says that God acts like a divine surgeon opening Adam up and taking one of his ribs and then closing it back up neatly. And from that rib that God took out of the man, verse 22 says that he made it into a woman. This is the one that God resolved to design up in verse 18. In verse 18, he said, I will make a helper fit for him, fit for Adam. Verse 22, God makes a woman. She is the creature. Not a bird or an ox or any other animal that corresponds perfectly to Adam. She is the helper that verse 18 talks about and that Adam, that man so desperately needs. A woman is the perfect piece to complement man, man. The perfect piece from Adam and for Adam to help him. Perhaps all that language sounds demeaning to you. Like some second class designation woman as a helper. Maybe the idea that forms in your mind is that of the mentality of many in the fifties and sixties that was portrayed in the movie, The Help, where many black women were only as good for washing the homes, cleaning the homes, washing the clothes, uh, fixing the food for well-to-do white families. They were nothing more than The Help. Or maybe what pops into your mind is the more broad picture perpetuated in churches where women of any color are often relegated to the sidelines, their only contribution to help in the nursery or to help with the fellowship meals. Maybe woman as helper has a negative connotation for you. If it does so, then let the Bible speak to you and not experiences, Because helper is not intended to be a disparaging title or a task. A helper in scripture is one who has an invaluable task to provide strength to the one who lacks it. To, 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 to one whose strength on their own is deficient, there's a helper who can give what they most des- desperately needed. It's not a term of weakness or suggesting frailty, but it has the idea of sufficient provision. I mean, you know who else in the Bible is called a Helper. the the Lord himself. Uh, Psalm chapter 54, verse 4, David says, behold, God is my helper. The psalmist in in Psalm 118, verse 7 declares, the Lord is on my side as my helper. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 9, God condemns Israel because of their sin. And he says, you are against me, against your helper. And as many of you already said, all throughout John chapters 14 and 15 and 16, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, talks about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, using the term, the helper, will come to you. I will send the helper. He will lead you into all truth. He will help you. It's no demeaning title, but a meaningful one with great meaning and purpose. Adam needed a helper fit for him, not exactly like him, but different from him. And yet complementary complimentary to him. And who did God make? Not another man. All right. All right. I mean, seemingly another man. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> seemingly another man could have provided some companionship. Men need other men. That's, that's a real thing. Seemingly, another man would have provided much strength and the hard task God had just given out. He put him in his garden, right? He could use some extra male hands to, to get to the work, to tend the garden. They could have known each other's experiences better, perhaps, as, as men. But a man was just like Adam, And couldn't help Adam with the other essential things that God called him to do, like filling the earth with more image bearers. Two men, no matter how much they can do together, cannot make a baby. That is not God's design. Neither did God make another animal. They're different from, from man right? If if he he didn't make another man because another man would be too like Adam, well, okay, let's make something different. Maybe an, an animal that's different ones Adam just named. They would be different. They would meet that criteria, but they would lack the core similarity that was needed being made in God's image and thus lacking the ability to relate to man at his core as a spiritual feeling being as a living soul. Lacking the ability to help him to uniquely represent his God as a fellow image bearer. And also lacking the ability, like two men, to produce other image bearers. They weren't even made in God's image. All right. No, who God made was who Adam needed. The perfect match. A woman. Different from Adam in design with, with different body parts. And different from Adam in function to help him to accomplish the task God gave man and woman as his equal partner. She was not beneath him or above him, but beside him as his perfect counterpart and companion. I mean, consider why we're even given the detail of the exact body part that God took out to create the woman. All right, it could have just been stated rather generally that God caused man to sleep, took one of his body parts, one of his organs, one of his uh, limbs to make woman. But instead, we read that God took one of his ribs. You come across those kind of things, you just ask, why is that? The Bible might answer all our questions, but it's good to ask questions of the Bible. I think this particular body part is specifically mentioned to show even from where woman was taken, how she was relate to Adam, her husband. The old Puritan pastor, Matthew Henry, makes the point that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved and be loved through him. God made Adam a woman, a wonderful woman, different in gender, different in role, but also like him. A fellow image bearer, the same stuff as Adam out of his ribs to be beside him, to walk beside him as his wife. Notice God didn't just make man and woman two separate sexes to live two separate lives in two separate spaces in the Garden of Eden in his presence. No, he made them to live together in his presence as a married couple. And so notice how the end of verse 22 doesn't just tell us that God made the woman, but but he brought her to the man. God is acting as the divine father of the bride. Walking her, as it were, down the aisle and presenting her to her husband. And look at Adam's reaction. Verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. At the first sight of this stunning woman, Adam is floored. She like me. But also unlike me she's of my bones she's the flesh of my flesh she's taken out of man but she's not a man she's a woman fit for me Friends don't miss this the first words ever recorded from man in scripture are praise at the perfection of a counterpart of a woman the first words that the Bible records by man in the scripture, by man, are praise for the provision of a wife. Amen. Amen. Dear brothers, I wonder if that is convicting to your heart. Perhaps because the words that come out of your mouth regarding the wife that God has given you are not praise, but pouting. Complaining. Complaining protesting at all that she is not. I remember one brother here several years ago pulled me aside gently and and, kind of corrected me, told me, rebuked me, chastised me and said, brother, you should never talk to your wife like that. I think, well, talk like what? I ain't curse her on anything. And he said, you know, you're kind of making, you know, joking criticisms of her. Other people are trying to commend her and you're trying to input comments about what she doesn't do well. Don't do that. You should praise what's praiseworthy in your wife. Husbands, even this week, what would it look like for you to remember the remarkable gift of a wife? And not just on Valentine's Day. What would it look like for you to praise her for who she is from God for you? A much-needed helper fits, designed to compliment you. Dear brothers, I wonder why we don't have this kind of praise for women in general, not just for wives. The gift of an opposite sex is a marvelous gift from God. Women are fearfully and wonderfully made. So so why is it that we use our words instead of praising this wonderful gift from God to instead call women all kind of names out of their names and to glorify music and movies that do the same? The first words, the untainted words out of man's mouth when he looked at a woman was wonder, amazement, and praise. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woman. Praise God for the gift of women as wives in our marriage. Praise God for the gift of women as members of our church. Can you imagine if this were an all male church? We would be an absolute mess. We would be totally deficient. If this were an all male church, we wouldn't be as spiritually hungry. We wouldn't be as theologically sound. We wouldn't be as affectionately caring. We wouldn't be as tender and sympathetic. We wouldn't be as burden sharing and burden bearing. We wouldn't be able to do, in other words, all that God has called us to do as Christians. Men need women and women need men. God has not designed one gender, but two distinct genders to live together in harmony. And the most intimate picture of that is in a marriage, which we see here with the first man and the first woman clinging tightly together as husband and wife. Notice that Moses, divinely inspired, adds a commentary to this whole scene on the creation of this first woman for this first man in verse 24. Therefore, he says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You see here the the proper participants in a marriage. Again, a man and a woman, a man and his wife. In case it's not obviously clear, the Bible has no idea of so-called same-sex marriage. It is a contradiction in terms. It is not marriage. Marriage is God's design from the very beginning. Marriage, notice, is not tied to a specific region or to a specific religion, but to all people, the first man and the first woman God put into a marriage to be a prototype for all future marriages. The proper participants are always and only one man and one woman. Marriage by God's design must be heterosexual and monogamous. You can't change the designer's design. Back in 2007, Steve Jobs came out with this marvelous design that we all often use called the iPhone. And he said, he vowed that one of the things that I will never have changed is the size of the iPhone. I want it to always be small. A few few years later, Steve Jobs died. And his replacement, Tim Cook, guess what one of the first things he did was? He made an iPlone 6+. plus. That plus means it got bigger in size. You you see, when you are fallible, uh, when you have the lifespan of a human, you might have designs, but those designs only last for as long as you last. But we're dealing in the Bible with an eternal God. So that when he makes his designs, they are meant to last for an eternity and no man, no woman, no matter when they come along, can change that plan, can change that design because God has not changed. He has moved off the scene. He is eternal and his eternal plans are still the same. Friends, to try to change God's design for marriage does not make you more loving. Does not make you more gentle? It makes you more in rebellion against the God of the universe. To to try to change God's design for marriage is a sin. To affirm those who attempt to change God's design for marriage is sin. It is open rebellion against God. And saints, we need to be wise and patient, loving, right? Gentle. All those things are very true. And we must do all those things without going against God's word without going against God's design. We see the proper participants in marriage, man and woman who have the proper parts for marriage, biological parts that fit together, sexual organs that are used by the man and woman, two separate beings to become one flesh, right? Even in the design of our bodies, they're meant to go together, right? It's not weird to talk to your kids about sex, to talk to your kids about anatomy, Because you know what happens when you don't talk to your kids about sex and anatomy? Someone else talks to your kids about sex and anatomy. And they get to bring their own ideas into the picture. No, God made those body parts to be used in the right way for the right purpose. And even the design of our bodies go together. Those parts that God has put together become one flesh. And it's very basic meaning that idea of one flesh is coming together in sexual union. It's not only that, but, it's, but it is that. And it's pointing to a deeper union and a deeper deeper intimacy uh, even beyond that. And we see here that, that for that deeper unity and for that deeper intimacy to happen, there must be a priority of marriage. So we see in, in, in verse Uh, Twenty-four, the proper participants of marriage, the the proper parts of those participants, and we also see the proper priority of marriage. Marriage is the highest of human relationships and attachments. Higher even than the very close attachment of parent to child and child to parent. A man, we're told, is to leave his father and his mama and to hold fast to his wife. I'm going to leave the woman who has nursed me from a babe. I'm going to leave the daddy who has provided for me food and clothing and instruction and wisdom from day one. I'm going to leave them because they're no longer your top priority. This leave here doesn't mean physically leave. In ancient times, the man, and his wife would often still live on his family's property. Believe in terms of your highest commitments, your highest allegiance, your highest affections no longer belonging to your parents. But a man's allegiance belonging to his wife. It's amazing here. The, the woman said to be the helper. She isn't told to be the one to leave. God puts that on the man. You, you lead out in that way. You lead in loving by showing that she is your number one. You leave everything that that once held tight attachments to you, and you show that she is most valuable, that she is your treasure. So many marriages get wrecked because men and women never do this or have a hard time doing doing this. If you are a father-in-law or mother-in-law, don't you be the one who adds to the distrust, the disunity of marriages by trying to keep son or daughter to yourself still. You're going to have to release them to the Lord. And in releasing them to the Lord, release them to their spouse. But for married couples, don't you be the one running back to mom and dad to tell every single problem going on in your marriage. That ain't good for you. That ain't good for your marriage. Now, y'all need to talk that thing out together. You can use some help in there, but but don't go back to mom and dad. Those are no longer your number one. Priority figures. Mom and Dad might be helpful, right? But but Mom and Dad are no longer your tightest attachments. It's really hard for us who have kids, right? Right. Oftentimes you're like, surely, (laughs) my heart is supposed to be highly attached to my children. You know how your children learn how to be good men and women, learn how to be good husbands and wives by you valuing your marriage more than you value them. But by you showing right? The biblical order. My first attachment is to Jesus. If he gives me a spouse, then my second attachment is to them. And then you are able to be a good child by seeing me live out that attachment well. It's weird. In practice, that feels weird, right? You figure your spouse a grown adult. They can figure life out on their own. This is a little child. There's seasons in that, right, where you have to have more attention to your, your child based on what season in life. But don't forsake the main thing. Right? Sooner or later, them kids, Lord willing, gonna grow up and meet and leave that house. Right? And guess who's gonna stay in that house? You and that joker that you ain't cultivated time with. You're gonna have to build into that relationship. Trust, love, care, affection, conversations. My friends, you're here this morning. I hope you don't feel guilty about that. All of us have felt it. I felt it. that. Lord, goodness. My wife's in nursery, thank the Lord today. Um We need help, right? We need help. We need each other. Let's be a church that talks about those things together, that shares those kind of things together, not in a kind of judgmental way, but actually tries to help each other, All right? And this whole scene ends in serenity in perfect peace and perfect bliss and perfect happiness. Verse 25 tells us that the man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. One commenter notes, that would have been scandalous for Israel to first hear. Israel, who all throughout the kind of law, all throughout their kind of practices were told, you must wear these long robes so that no nakedness is ever uncovered. Why are all these clothes covering us up? It was often associated with guilt. And here they read at the beginning, man and woman naked naked and no shame, there's celebration. There's enjoyment of one another, there's freedom, there's innocence between these two different, but united beings. But as happy as it all is in Genesis chapter two, verse 25, it's all pointed to something even better than Genesis chapter two, verse 25. A better marriage, a better union with a far better partner. Melanie read for us earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul quotes from this passage. From Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Jesus Christ came to a world that that had made a wreck marriage. And they made a wreck of every other relationship, especially our relationship with God. We'll see the origins of that next week. And no wonder, because when we wreck that primary relationship, the one with our creator, every other human relationship also gets destroyed. But Jesus came to rescue and to restore. He came to act as something of a husband totally other than us. He was the perfect son of God who lived for all eternity and yet who became like us as a man to take for himself a people as his bride. He lived a perfect life for us and then he he paid the dowry price to have us as his bride. And what did he pay? Oh, an an incredible and insurmountable amount. He paid the price to have us as his bride at the price of his own precious blood. He died on the cross for our sins so that he bring us. He rose from the grave three days later and caused us all to turn from our sins and to trust in him, to have him as he's come to have us. And for those who do, Jesus takes us to himself and he unites us to himself as one with him. He even goes so far as to identify himself with his people. Saul, Saul, he says in the book of Acts, why have you persecuted me? And in uniting us to himself through his death for us and his resurrection, he also unites us to one another as, as one. So that all Christians in all places now are the bride of Christ, with Christ as our perfect husband. Friends, that means that if you're here this morning and you're single, you do not have to be hopeless. Because marriage is none of our ultimate hope. Marriage is a picture pointing to Christ. It's the picture of Christ and the church and the deep love and unity and intimacy found between Christ and the church. So that even if you're single, you're not alone. You have Jesus, the one who deeply loves you. If you are doubting his love, look at the cross. Greater love has no man than this, than that he laid down his life for another. Jesus laid down his life for you. He loves you. Not only does he love you, but he's promised to never leave you or forsake you. And part of that promise is by surrounding you with other brothers and sisters, other males and females in the church to be in deep relationship with. You see, friends, for all of us, intimacy does not equal marriage. Intimacy does not ultimately equal sex. Jesus and Paul lived single, celibate lives. As one author says, marriage is not the sole answer to the observation, it is not good that man should be alone. Uh, Not all of us were made for marriage, but all of us were made for intimacy. And we can have it truly, freely, enjoyably, in and with Christ. And friends, we should strive to have it truly and freely and enjoyably with others. With men and women, Christ has given us as gifts. That means we need to strive to be a church that not only highly values and celebrates marriages, but that more highly values and celebrates our union with Christ. And that intentionally builds deep intimate relationships with each other so that together we might accomplish God's purposes for us as men and women, as married and unmarried to fulfill all God's commands and to enjoy the deep and rich fellowship that God has given to us. Gender and marriage are good gifts God gives to accomplish his purposes and for us to enjoy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Instructs, convicts, converts, challenges, clarifies, refreshes, enlivens, encourages, and strengthens the heart. Lord, we pray that you would use your word as salve to those who are suffering, uh, as a uh, boost for those who need encouragement, and, Lord, as a hammer to break hard hearts. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would get glory through the way you created us as men and women, uh, as male and female, as husband and wives, as uh, female and male church members. We pray that you would help us to live for your glory, demonstrating, showcasing how good you are and how good your designs for us are. Would Jesus get honor through our worship together? We pray this in his name. Amen.